be in Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3. And let's do the smart thing here before we get started. Let's have a quick word of prayer. Heavenly Father, just good to be here this morning. Good to see all the smiling faces. And just uh, for those that couldn't be with us today due to illness, work, or traveling, just pray that your hand be upon them. And just pray that this time here, Lord, is blessed by you through your spirit for you, Lord, in your name. Amen. Continuing our study here through Luke 3. Now, last week we took a, a little bit of a break. We had our VBS Sunday, so we had our VBS program and presentation. And once again, a big thanks to all those who helped with that. What a blessing that was. Um, over 150 kids got a chance to come out and hear about the Lord. So amen to that. So, But we're in Luke 3 this morning, continuing our verse-by-verse study here through the book of Luke. We've covered the first two chapters, which really set the scene here for what we're going through now. The first two chapters introduce us to John the Baptist, his parents, introduce us to Mary and Joseph, and obviously the birth of Christ. And that's what we covered here for the first couple uh, chapters. Now we're introduced to John as a man and also Christ as a grown man. And now we're going to get into their public ministries here. So with that being said, let's jump right into this. Luke chapter 3, verse 1. It says, Now in the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip tetrarch of Ituria, and the region of Trachonitis and Lysias tetrarch of Abin, with Annas and Caiaphas were high priests. Now if you're like me, you read through that and you say, I absolutely have no idea what in the world you're talking about. What this is, in these verses... Excuse me, these verses are important because they set the historical and time frame context of what we're dealing with. We know by all these names being mentioned here, we can put this date in the late 20s A.D. So now we know who this is and where this is. And what this is is really just the governmental rulers of the day from top to bottom. We have Tiberius Caesar, who's the head of Rome. Pontius Pilate is the governor over all Judea, where we're at. And then Tetrarch just means that they governed a fourth of the kingdom. So then under Pilate, we had these different guys here, Herod, Philip, etc., that were then all sub-governors under this. The equivalent would be if we would say something to the fact today of in the third year of the presidency of Obama while in the second year of Kasich being governor of Ohio. It just sets the context of where we're at. So now that we know this, we got the political scene set in verse 1. Verse 2, we have Annas and Caiaphas now mentioned as high priest. Now, if you're quick here thinking about this, your first thought is there shouldn't be two high priests. There's only one high priest. Well, what should happen here during this time is Annas used to be high priest. Well, Annas was a little rebellious as the Jewish high priest. Rome didn't like that, so Rome kicked him out of being high priest, put Caiaphas as high priest, which was Annas' son-in-law. Well, the Jews didn't like that, so they still looked to Annas as being high priest, where literally Caiaphas was the one that was appointed by Rome. So it's in this political mess, it's in this religious mess, that we have what? Verse 2, God, the word of God, came to John, the son of Zacharias, in the wilderness. John the Baptist comes into the scene now. What's his role? What's his ministry? Verse 3, And he went into all the region around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sins. As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight, every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough way smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. That's John's ministry. That's what John's here to do. He's come to do verse 4, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. I think this is important, that phrase there. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. 
His sole purpose in life was to do what? Prepare the way of the Lord. We're going to hit this point a lot today. The sole purpose you are on this planet today is to prepare the way of the Lord. That's all that matters. The longer I walk with the Lord, the more years I serve as a pastor, the more I realize the only thing that matters are people saved or not saved. That's all that matters. And am I doing a job of pointing them towards Christ? Am I doing a job of equipping them and building them up to go deeper in their walking relationship with the Lord? We sometimes get so focused on us, on what about us, and what about what I'm doing, what about the footprint I'm leaving. I don't care about the footprint I'm leaving. I just want to point people towards Christ. That's what matters is making sure that we are preparing people for the Lord. And I think once we die and we get to heaven, we're going to realize, boy, that is all that matters. Just think of this week, maybe you can think of today, how much time was wasted being worried, anxious, fearful, or upset about something that has absolutely nothing to do in the whole scheme of eternity. Nothing. That's wasted time. Lord, help us to have that focus of just you. And you know, John, it's kind of interesting here because John is given quite the compliment in Luke 7 and Matthew 11. Jesus says he's the greatest man ever born of a woman. Now think about that. That's a pretty big statement, that John the Baptist is the greatest man ever born of a woman. And you know why he was the greatest man ever born of a woman? Because his sole purpose in life was to point people towards Jesus. When you really have that focus that the only thing that matters is I'm going to point people towards Christ, you're really fulfilling what God has in store for you. Don't allow anything else to get in the way of seeing the gospel spread. That's what matters. Now, real quick, I find this interesting. If you look here at the end of verse 2, it says, John the son of Zacharias, he was in the wilderness. Verse 4, it says, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. If you remember when we were introduced to John the Baptist after he was born, it says that he went out and he lived in the desert. I find this fascinating. So here's John, lived in the desert and came out of the wilderness. That's interesting. John was a weird guy. John's the guy that walked around in the camel hair. John's the guy that ate locusts with honey, the Bible said. John's the guy that lived out in the wilderness. I find this fascinating. Why would the Lord put him in the wilderness? Very simply put, God put John in the wilderness to prepare him for the man that he was going to become. John had to go through the wilderness to become the man of God that God wanted him to be. And you know why? Because look at his ministry. Jump ahead to verse 15. Now as the people were in expectation and all reasoned in their hearts about John, whether he was the Christ or not. Now I know you love the Lord and I know you're trying to do the best you can to live for the Lord, but just be honest with yourself. Has anybody ever confused you for Jesus? I mean, really confused you for Christ? Like, I, are you Christ? I've had a lot of good compliments in my life, but I've never had one person actually think I was Jesus. John lived such a life, verse 15, they thought he was the Messiah. Now, how did he get to that point? Because the Lord prepared him in the wilderness for what he was to become. See, let's say John wasn't prepared for this. Can you imagine what type of ministry John would have? John had the first megachurch in the Bible. Everybody started coming to him. He had, he had all these people coming, so much so, verse 15, are you the Messiah? Now he answers vehemently, no, I'm not. Now if that happened to me, are you the Messiah? I would like for one second just to think about it. You know what I mean? Just that one second of let them just think. John said, no, I'm not. See, if John was not prepared in the wilderness for this, he would not have been able to handle this. His, his pride, his emotions, his head would have gotten so big, God wouldn't have been able to use him because he tasted success. I have seen some Christians that are really great serving in the lower levels, but as soon as they taste a little, taste a little bit of spiritual success, their heads get so big they're no longer of use to God. See, John was prepared for this because God put him in the wilderness. 
John was also prepared because the message that John gave is not an easy message to give. Look back here at verse 7. Look at this message. Then he said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? I've been preaching messages for 15 years. One thing I know, preaching 101, never start out calling your group a brood of vipers. That is not a good way to get their attention. John didn't back down. Brood of vipers. See, God put him in the wilderness to prepare him for the ministry that he had. His ministry was going to be a ministry that was spiritually successful. So God had to have him in the wilderness to make sure he knew humbleness. His ministry was going to be a very difficult ministry. A very difficult preaching ministry. Look at verse 9. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. John is a hellfire and brimstone guy. Now I know that sounds fun. Hellfire and brimstone messages are really not a lot of fun. I've only had the opportunity in the years I've been teaching to only teach a couple hellfire and brimstone messages. I remember one time years ago I was asked to come teach at a campus crusade for Christ. And so I was really praying about what to teach, and the Lord really laid on my heart. I need to be heavy on this one. It's one of the few hellfire and brimstone messages that I ever did. But you go in there knowing that you're just going to be straightforward and blunt. And i got to be honest, it is a little fun telling people they're going to go to hell. I don't know why that is, but it's a little fun just to sit there and say, you're going to hell unless you accept Christ. I don't get to do it too often, but it's kind of fun. John, that was his ministry. Now, if you know anything about growing a church, you don't preach about hell. You don't preach about sin. You just preach about good, fun things so that way people feel good about themselves. No. God put John in the wilderness to prepare him to become this man that would not allow his head to be get big with success, and it would allow him to still preach the truth, honestly, straightforwardly, with no fear of what people think about him. He had to go through the wilderness to be prepared for this. And then when his time was ready, God brought him out of the wilderness and then used him in public ministry. Now, same thing still happens to us today. God allows you to go through the wilderness. And he uses that time of wilderness to grow you to become the man and woman of God that he's called you to be. There's four things about the wilderness we're going to talk about here. So just listen to this. If you're taking notes, you can write it down. First one we've already covered. The wilderness is a time to prepare you. Now, when I talk about the wilderness, what are we talking about? We're talking about a spiritually tough time in your life, a physically tough time, an emotionally tough time, a wilderness where everything is barren, where you feel like there's nobody else. You're all alone. No one understands. No one gets. You're just struggling with life. Here's the problem. God uses those times to prepare you, but what's the first thing we do when we're in a wilderness? We look for the first way out. Now, how is God supposed to prepare us if we're looking for the first way out? God sometimes wants us in that wilderness. I've had people come up to me over the years and say, well, I know my God. My God just wants me to be fruitful. My God just wants me to have... I agree, your God wants you to be fruitful. But any plant you know is not producing fruit every season of life. Sometimes those plants, we live in a farming community, we plant winter wheat. That wheat has to sit through the winter to be produced the crop that comes in June. There's times in your life where you have to go to a wilderness time to have more fruit later on in life. There's a purpose in that, and we need to trust that purpose. Don't look for the first way of escape. Sometimes at home we'll do something where we call a huddle, where all the boys will come. So we call a huddle, and I get all four of the older boys, and we sit down and say, okay, here's the plan. And this is what happens. Judah, our second one, he pays attention. Kenan is just in Kenan world. He's just not even paying attention. Layden's usually doing something wrong. But then my oldest one, Elias, I will get two seconds into telling him what the battle plan is. You know what Elias says? Okay, I got it. Let's go. 
And Emily's like, I haven't even told you what we're doing yet. It's okay, I got it. He's, okay, this is what happens in the wilderness. We get in the wilderness. We're in the wilderness for one day. Okay, God, I got it. I've learned my lesson. Let's go, move on. No. You realize Moses was in the wilderness for 40 years? Jesus was 40 days. You know, there's a time where the Lord says, it's just you and me, and, and you're not ready to come out yet. Say, this is what happens. Tough times hit us, and the first thing we want to do is those tough times will be over. I do it, you do it. I get phone calls and say, my life is so difficult. My marriage is so difficult. My job is so difficult. My life, my health, everything is just so difficult. That's a wilderness. God is using that time to prepare you, to make you a better, stronger believer for what's coming out at the end. You have to be prepared for that. Now, the next step about wilderness is this. Sometimes the Lord wants us to go into the wilderness. Jesus willingly went into the wilderness. In Luke 5, it says that he would get up every morning and go to the wilderness and pray. See, we spend all of our life trying to stay out of the wilderness where God says, sometimes you really need to be in there and just spend time alone with me. Oh, I tell you, the longer I walk with the Lord, the more I realize that quiet time with him is more important than anything. How can I minister to the church unless I'm being ministered with Christ alone? How can I minister to my wife and my kids unless I have that time alone? That time alone with God is so vital. And that's the purpose of that wilderness is where we willfully go in on our own and say, okay, Lord, it's just you and I. Now, this doesn't mean that you go in there and you ignore everybody. It doesn't mean you quit coming to church. It doesn't mean you quit serving. It just means that you carve out that time where you say, I'm going to make sure that there's time for me and God, and I strip myself of everything else. Maybe I cut out that TV time. Maybe I cut out that activity. I put that project on hold for a little bit, and I just spend time with my Savior in the wilderness one-on-one so that way he can prepare me for what he has coming. Third point about a wilderness. It's difficult. Hebrews chapter 3, when talking about wilderness times, calls it a trial. It is not easy. It is not easy in any way whatsoever. I know people that want to be that tough Christian. They want to be toughened up. And so they they want to go into the wilderness to get ready. And after one day in the wilderness, they want out as quick as they possibly can. It's a trial. Just like camping. Do you know people that want to go camping? People that want to go camping, it's always interesting when people come up and say, hey, we're excited. I said, why, you're going to go camping? Oh, I said, great. Have you ever camped before? Nope, never gone camping, but it sure sounds fun. You've never gone camping? No, what are you going to do? We're just going to go, put a tent up, make a fire, and we're just going to camp. It's like, you've never camped? No, never camped. It's like, you're not going to last, man. You, unless, there's a group of people that like camping. Okay, and then there's a group of people like air-conditioned RVs that they call it camping. There, there's, there's different things here. The true camping of I'm going to go out and make a fire and live in a tent and whatever weather happens, there's a very few select people that want to go camping. Same thing with the wilderness. I've met people that's like, Lord, I want this. No, you want your air-conditioned RV. Truth of the matter is, I don't know anybody, even in the Bible, that enjoyed their wilderness time. Jesus suffered in his wilderness time. Moses suffered. David suffered. Elijah's wilderness time was so difficult, he prayed, Lord, kill me. Wilderness times are difficult. They're a trial. So here's the hard part about it, and this takes us to our last point. The wilderness time is just you and God. Galatians 1, when Paul got saved, a lot of us don't remember this, but Paul went out into the wilderness for a few years when he first got saved because God had to prepare Paul for what he had in store for him. So he put him in the wilderness. See, here's what happens. You're going through a wilderness time. You call somebody up. You call your friend up. You call a ministry leader out here at church, you call me up, you call a pastor up, and you you open up your heart. Your life's falling apart, marriage is tough, work's tough, health is tough. 
And what happens is you're looking for a human being to fix your problem and to take you out of the wilderness. No one can do that. When I first was a pastor, I used to try to pull people out of the wilderness. You're fighting against God on that one. Sometimes the Lord wants you in the middle of the wilderness to strip you of absolutely everything. So that way you're prepared for what he has in store for you. And that means it's just you and God. And then what happens is you feel alone, you feel empty, you feel like no one's there, no one cares, no one understands me. No, those are all just lies from Satan. We care, we know, we're praying for you, but a wilderness time is you and the Lord alone together preparing you for what God has in store for you. John had to be prepared. If John was not prepared, his head would have gotten so big from the success of this ministry, he wouldn't have been effective for the Lord. John had to be prepared because the message that God asked him to give was a difficult message and he had to be ready. God used this wilderness time to prepare John to become the man of God that he wanted him to be. So if you're in a wilderness time right now and you kind of feel like everything's falling apart, what's the answer? Let's find out. Can you go to Psalm 63 with me, please? Psalm 63. Psalm 63. Let's talk about what we're supposed to do when we're in that wilderness time. Psalm 63, verse 1, it says, A psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. A lot of us don't remember, but David was in the wilderness time. He was anointed king over Israel, but Saul was still king. So Saul didn't like the competition with David, so Saul tried to have David killed. David had to run into the wilderness, and that's when he wrote this psalm. What does he say? Verse 1, O God, you are my God. Early I will seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you. In a dry and thirsty land where there is no water, so I have looked for you in the sanctuary to see your power and your glory. What do you see here in verses 1 and 2? When you're in the wilderness, the only person that gets you through is God. I am not saying there's not a support and an encouragement in the body of Christ. That's an important point, because look right here in verse 2. I have looked for you in the sanctuary. When you're going through a difficult time, you need the church. You need the support, the encouragement. You need that time of praise and worship. You need an area to serve. You need that edifying from the Word. One of the most prideful, arrogant things we can do is to think that we don't need the body of Christ. God has designed us to be a body that works together. And when I run into people that don't think they need the body of Christ, they have an air of spiritual strength in them, followed by a whole lot of weakness behind them. We need this. What happens, though, when you're going through a difficult time? Last place you want to go is church. Isn't that what the enemy does? He keeps you from where you need to be. He keeps you from that place of strength. We joke out here all the time. When you're going through a difficult time in life, Satan does not keep you from Walmart. He does not keep you from McDonald's. He keeps you from the only place that helps, which is church. But don't cling to man. As we just talked about earlier, mankind cannot pull you out of the wilderness. It's you and the Lord. Look at verse 1 more time. Oh God, you are my God. Early I will seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there is no water. That's the trial tribulation of a wilderness. God, I seek you. You're the only one that can get me through this. Verse 3, because your loving kindness is better than life, my lips shall praise you. Thus I will bless you while I live. I will lift up my hands in your name. My soul shall be satisfied as with marrow and fatness, and with my mouth shall praise you with joyful lips. One of the most important things you can do in a wilderness time is have a time of praise and worship. Too often we look at praise and worship as the result of something God did. God gave me a good day at work, so therefore I praise him. I had a good result at the doctor, so therefore I praise him. That's good. But God is worthy of your praise no matter what the result was at the doctor. God is worthy of your praise no matter how your day went at work. See, what happens is we look at praise and worship as something God earns 
by doing something for us. That's not praise and worship. Praise and worship is, God, you are worthy to be praised no matter what my situation is in life because you're God. See, David in his wilderness time, verses 3 through 5, he knew that. I will praise him no matter what. If you're going through a dry time right now, have a time of praise and worship. Verse 6, when I remember you on my bed, I meditate on you in the night watches because you have been my help. Therefore, in the shadow of your wings, I will rejoice. My soul follows close behind you. Your right hand upholds me. This is what I've noticed in my life personally when I talk to other people. When you're going through a difficult time in life, when you're in that spiritual, emotional, physical wilderness, what's one of the most difficult times of day? Nighttime. Verse 6, when I remember you on my bed, I meditate you on you in the night watches. It's night. You're tired. You're physically tired. Worry, fear, anxiety gets the best of you. Did I do enough today? Oh, what about tomorrow? I'm worked up about this. And then you can't sleep. That's why the psalmist says when you're in the middle of a wilderness, at night you will remember him on your bed and he's the one that will get you through because he is your help. Only him and him alone. Why? Because it's difficult. Verse 9 and 10. Those who seek my life to destroy it shall go into lower parts of the earth. They shall fall by the sword. They shall be a portion of the jackals. People are out there to hurt us. Situations out there harm us. They bring us down. But 11, but the king shall rejoice in God. Everyone who swears by him shall glory, but the mouth of those who speak lies shall be stopped. You get your eyes on the Lord. You get your focus on the Lord, and he's the one that gets you through it. So often I tell this to people, and this is what I hear. But it's so difficult. Yeah, that's why it's called a wilderness. That's why it's called a trial. Why would God allow this to happen if he's a God of love? Because God loves you so much, he wants you to become the man or woman of God that he's called you to be. And these wilderness times prepare you to become that person that God wants for you. That's what he does. He uses those times. John the Baptist spent a good chunk of his adult life in the wilderness preparing him for his public ministry that the Lord then used mightily in all ways and all things. So what was his ministry that he did? Verse 4 says, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, which we've talked about. Make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled. Every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight. The rough way smooth, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Four things but you see right there. Valleys filled, mountains brought low, crooked places made straight, rough way smooth. Now a little bit of background on this. Before any type of person of power or king would travel in Bible times, they would send out a group of people before him that would do just that. This is the path the king's going to take. Okay, there's a few potholes filled in. Oh, there's a big stone. Get it out of the way. That's what they did. They prepared the road before him. John the Baptist's ministry was to prepare people to meet the Lord. So this is what he did. Now, you're one of those four people right there. You may be the valley that needs to be filled. You're low. You're discouraged. You're depressed. You're low. You need to be filled with the Lord and brought up to a place of rejoicing when you realize what God has done and can do for you. Or maybe you're the mountain. You're a little too big for your britches. God needs to level you off a little bit. Because it's not about you, it's about him. Maybe you're crooked. You started out good with the Lord, but now you've kind of veered over to an area you shouldn't be. Your path needs to be made straight. Maybe you're the last one. You're just a little rough around the edges. God's in the business of smoothing you out, watching your words a little bit, watching your temper, watching your anger, smoothing you out. What's the point of lifting up the low, lowering the high, making the straight, and, and smoothing everybody out? The point is, verse 6, that all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Because it all comes back to each one of us needs to come to know Christ personally. So therefore, the Lord is doing what he can, and this is what John the Baptist's ministry was, was to bring people towards Christ. As I said before, and I said, we'll keep saying it again, your life does not matter. What only matters is are you pointing people towards Jesus? Don't get off the track of preparing people to meet the Lord. That's all. 
So how did John do it? Verse 7. And he said to the multitudes that came out to be baptized by him, Brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. Therefore, bear fruits worthy of repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I say to you that God is able to raise up children to Abraham from these stones. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, look at John's message. First off, verse 7, and we've talked about that before, brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. He, he, he's honest. Judgment is, is coming. There is a hell. The result of our sinful decisions in life is that we deserve hell. So that's the first point he makes, is that there is wrath coming. Judgment is coming. But then look at verse 8. Therefore, bear fruits the worthy of repentance. He says, well, then what do you do is you repent. See, this is what happens too often in Christians. We have lots of Christians out there that will very loudly, proudly proclaim you're going to hell. They don't tell you what to do about it then. You're just going to go to hell. Well, what about verse 8? Repentance. What a beautiful thing that is. See, this is the problem we run into Christianity. Is there's these extremes. There's the extreme of you're going to hell. We're just going to talk about that every single Sunday, how you're going to hell. So what does the church consist of? People that are saved, that just say Amen. Those unbelievers are going to hell. Amen! That's what the church is, just again and again and again. Well, then you have the other side where they just talk about the goodness and grace of God, which is a beautiful thing, don't get me wrong. But you never mention the fact of that there's sin and hell and consequences for actions. You have to have the balance of verse 7 and verse 8. There is a hell, there is judgment, wrath is coming, but verse 8, there's also repentance found in the Lord. You need to have both. John then goes on to say in verse 8, don't trust your religion. Because they said, we have Abraham as our father. See, the problem was when the Jews were told this by John, they said, we don't need to worry about it. We're good Jews. We can trace our lineage back. I'm of one of the 12 tribes. So therefore, I'm covered because I'm a son of Abraham and I'm good. John says, that doesn't count. That doesn't mean anything. Don't trust that religion. Don't trust that lineage. You have to know, come to know Christ personally. Same thing happens today. Now, we may not say that we're sons of Abraham, but we say other things. Sometimes when I'm talking to someone, I'll come up to them and say, I say, are you a Christian? And if their first response is, well, I am fill-in-the-blank, I'm Lutheran, I'm Methodist, I'm Presbyterian, I'm Baptist, I'm Catholic, I'm whatever, to me that's always a quick warning sign of, wait a second. I didn't ask what denomination you are. I asked, are you a Christian? Is understanding who that is. And that can even be, I'm non-denominational, I go to Harvest. Okay, that stuff doesn't matter. The purpose of Harvest Fellowship is not to see Harvest Fellowship grow. That's not the purpose. It's not about numbers. It's about having people come, hear about Christ, and then you go out and tell people about Christ. What matters most is do you know the Lord personally? And seeing John saying, I don't care that you are a descendant of Abraham. Are you ready to meet the Messiah? Are you ready to meet Jesus? So, verse 7, wrath. Verse 8, repentance. Verse 8, don't trust religion. Which brings us then to verse 9. Because judgment is coming. And even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Therefore, every tree which does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. You get this visual, this, this, this idea of this guy with an axe right there by a tree getting ready to swing and completely just knock that tree down. Why? Because that tree is being judged because it does not bear fruit. Now, what's it mean to bear fruit? Bearing fruit means you're doing things that show that your life has been changed in Christ. Now, this is an important point. You don't bear fruit to be saved, but you bear fruit because you are saved. And we have to make sure that point is made. Because what happens is sometimes people equate doing good things, which means I am saved. I've met people who I believe fully are saved, but sometimes don't make good godly moral decisions. And I've met people who I know aren't saved, 
that make very good godly moral decisions. Your works don't save you, but your works are a sign that you have been changed in the Lord. And so what John does is he prepares them. So the people respond in verse 10. So the people ask him, saying, what shall we do then? Okay, so you're telling us wrath is coming. You're telling us we need to repent. Don't trust in just being a Jew. And you're telling us judgment is there for not bearing fruit if we don't show the signs of a changed life. So what, what are we supposed to do? Now, please note verse 10. This is not what do we have to do to be saved. The context of this is since we are changed, since we have repented, verse 8, since we are saved, what do we need to do? What, how should our life be since we are different? Verse 11, he answered and said to them, He who has two tunics... Let him give to one who has none, and he who has food, let him do likewise. The first thing that John says to do is to be a giving person. Okay, that's pretty simple. Two tunics, two coats. I only need one. I give one away. I have enough to eat. Verse 11, I share my food. That's pretty simple, straightforward. Isn't it kind of interesting? This is one thing I've noticed with Christians. Sometimes Christians are the last people to give. You know why sometimes Christians are the last people to give? We have very judgmental giving. I've heard Christians say this. I probably say this myself. Well, they need a coat? Well, tell them to go get a job and get a coat. Yeah. Well, I'm just not going to go out and give people free stuff. No, I'm not going to do that. Those are just freeloaders. Those are people who just want things. They just keep taking and taking and taking. I'm going to put a stop to this right now. I, yeah, there you go. Yeah. And you're going straight to hell. See, I get to say that, see? There is a point of us, and we've all had those moments of, I'm not going to have anybody take anything from me. I'm not going to do this. I'm going to put my foot down. And sometimes, and let's just cover both sides of this godly wisdom, sometimes you need to sell, tell people no. I mean, you do. That's just godly wisdom. I remember when we used to go uh, down to Atlanta before we had kids, anytime you'd leave the ball game, there was always a row of homeless people always asking for money. I mean, there's thousands of people coming out of the stadium, and they all had their little, little signs. And I've shared with you before that um, if I see somebody saying, um, you know, we'll work for food or something like that, I stop, I carry little McDonald's gift cards with me, and I'll stop and I'll give them a gift card for food. I mean, I, that's a burden I have, and I feel like that's something I need to do. So if I see somebody like that, I'll usually try to stop and help. Well, one time we were leaving Atlanta, and there's all these signs of people saying, you know, I lost my job, whatever, you know, we'll work for food. And then there was one guy that just had a sign that says, I want to buy beer. That's what his sign said. More people gave him money than anybody else. Now, I did not feel any burden spiritually to give that man money. And then you can come and quote the verses. Well, James, right here in verse 11, it says you're supposed to give. If you come to me and say, listen, I totally want to get wasted tonight. Can I have 20 bucks to go buy a 12-pack? No, I'm not. No, I'm not under any obligation to do that. Now, if you come to me and say, uh, my great-great-great-grandmother is uh, in the hospital and I need to take her, can I have some money for gas? Yeah, we'll give you some gas. Well, I'm just going to take that money and go buy beer. I don't know that, but you know who does know it? God. You know what happens if you go buy beer instead of getting gas? Going straight to hell. I mean, that's what's going to happen. <laughs> the Lord knows your heart. I may not know your heart, and there's probably been times where people have come and given me a great sob story, and we have probably fallen for it. But God knew our intentions. But what this passage is talking about in verse 11, if you see somebody in need and you can help with that, a godly attribute of a Christian is to give. Can you imagine if Christ hung on the cross and said, you want me to die for you? You go get your own grace and mercy. You go find your own cross. You go nail your own self up on that cross. You go die for your own sins. Jesus freely gave grace and mercy to people who do not deserve grace and mercy. That's the picture of cross. Next one. 
Verse 12, Then tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? He said to him, Collect no more than what is appointed for you. What you have there in verse 12, you have honesty. Now, I, I know no one here, I hope no one here, does the big, old, grandiose fish lies. But we all have this tendency to fudge the truth a little bit. We all have this tendency sometimes to, to make up little things. God says, as a Christian, there's supposed to be a heart of honesty. Honesty in what we say and what we do. Last one. Verse 14, Likewise the soldiers asked him, saying, And what shall we do? So he said to them, Do not intimidate anyone or accuse falsely, and be content with your wages. Look at that word there in verse 14, content. That's such a dirty word sometimes. Content. Especially when you live in an American society where there's always a house that, boy, if we just had a little more space. Where there's always that car that's a little nicer. There's always that boat that's a little bigger. There's always that TV. And there's always that TV. I mean, I, Don and I were talking about this the other day. The first memory of a TV I have is I can remember a 13-inch black and white. I can remember that. And I'm sure we had a color TV at the time, and I think we had a 19-inch color. first TV that Don and I had when we got married was a 27-inch color. And then we moved up to a 32-inch. And then you just keep moving up and moving up. And now I want to build an addition so I can have like an 80-inch, you know? Because you can't have a TV big enough. You just can't. And this is what happens in this society. Is what happened to this idea of, of contentment. Turn, if you will, please, to 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy 6. This, this American society we live in is always wanting something bigger, better, faster, newer. 1 Timothy chapter 6. 1 Timothy 6, and let's go ahead here and pick it up in verse 6. This is a good, what I call, refrigerator verse. 1 Timothy 6, verse 6. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into this world, and it's certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and have pierced themselves through with many sorrows. You know, we talked about earlier with John the Baptist that part of the reason why he had to spend time in the wilderness is because he was going to have a very successful ministry, and God knew that. And God had to prepare John for success, so that way success did not ruin John. Well, I've run into some Christians where riches, they've ruined them. When money was tight, bills were tight, food was tight, the relationship with Christ was a lot stronger before they had a surplus. Sometimes surpluses can really be an issue. There's a passage in Proverbs that I love where he comes right out and says, Give me neither poverty nor riches. He comes out and says, Basically, don't make me so poor that I forsake you, but don't make me so rich I forget you. There's nothing wrong with being right in the middle sometimes. Godliness with contentment. Now, just last week, if you're quick to remember, which you probably aren't, we talked about contentment, I believe. And we talked about how contentment was bad. Because we talked about how people can become spiritually content. That, hey, I'm a lot better than what I was. I mean, yeah, I sometimes say things I shouldn't say, but you should have heard me cuss a couple years ago. Yeah, every now and then my eyes wander and look at something I shouldn't, but you should have seen me six months ago. Yeah, my wife and I, we still aren't spiritually where we're supposed to be, but boy, we fought like cats and dogs a couple years ago. That we become almost a spiritually content. And we talked about how that's a horrible place to be, is just this place of comfortability in Christ. This content is not talking about that. This is a content of materialism, of being content with what God gave you. You know, when that storm hit a month or so ago, we lost power for a couple of days like a lot of you did. So we got ready to do devotions at night, and so we had no power. So what we did is we went outside and grabbed our solar lights. And so the boys are all holding a solar light in their bedroom. And so we opened it up, and we went to 1 Timothy 6, and we did verse 6. Now godliness with contentment is great gain. And we said, okay, let's list everything that we miss. If we had power, we would do this. 
So we went through the list of everything we did, and then we stopped and said, now listen what we have. You got water, you got food, you got a bed to sleep in. That's contentment. And I hope it was a life lesson for them. Because you know what? As adults, we struggle with this, don't we? There's always something more we want. Now, is there something wrong with enjoying the blessings that God has given you? There's nothing wrong with that. God has not called us to a vow of poverty. God has called us to be wise stewards of what he has given us. And we have to make sure that we're careful for these things. Because look what happens. Look at verse 8 one more time. Food and clothing with these we shall be content. Verse 9, but those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. It's amazing what the world can dangle in front of you. With that, that bigger promotion, which equals more money, that, that's what we want. I, I have met people that have gotten that promotion and that bigger money and it's ruined their lives and marriage. Sometimes it's better just to stay where you're at. Or they dangle that overtime in front of you. Double pay, triple pay. Oh, you know what? Yeah, that would help pay off the bills a little quicker, but sometimes you just need to have that family time. We just got to be careful right there in verse 9. Because verse 10, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And this has been said numerous ways and numerous times. Money is not the root of all evil. It's the love of money that's the root of all evil. I know people that are blessed financially, and they have a very good paying job, or they have money is not an issue for them, and they use that blessing to bless other people. That money is not a snare to them. But I also know people that may have one dime in their checkbook, and that money is a snare to them. My oldest boy, money is a snare to him. He'll come up, and he's been doing this lately. We'll be laying there. He'll come up and just he'll start rubbing your neck and back. Do it for a minute or two. He'll stop and say, now that'll be a dollar. And I'll say, I said, I, I did not. I did not. No, I didn't make an appointment. No, I did not, I did not do this. And so what happens now is he'll come up and go, I'll rub your back for a quarter. And I'll say, no. And he'll, he'll negotiate, 15 cents. No, 10 cents, just give me 10 cents. And it's like, oh my goodness, this kid's going to go downhill faster than what I can imagine. And so what happens is you finally give in, you give him his 10 cents, he'll come back and he's like, okay, I got, I got 50 cents, I'm going to trade it now for two quarters. So he gets his two quarters, he gets a couple, and then come back later and he'll trade it for a dollar. And he's just constantly, he, he's seven years old and he goes, dad, can I look at my bank book? Because the boys all have their own little savings account. And I said, why do you look at your bank book? I just want to see how much I have in there. You know? The love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Pray for him. His name is Elias. And unless he changes, he's going straight to hell. You know, I mean, it's just one of those things there. But it is. And this is why when John... See, so often when we, people come up and say, what am I supposed to do with my life? Look, look how simple it is. John's life. Point people towards Jesus. Be giving. Be honest. Be content. That's really not difficult to do. Now put this all together here. We're introduced to John the Baptist in Luke 3 as adult ministry. He was in the wilderness. Why was he in the wilderness? Because God put him in the wilderness to prepare him for bigger things to come. And John had to be prepared for those things or he would not be able to handle the ministry calling and the success that it would have been. God allows you to go in the wilderness now to prepare you for something that he has in store for you. You need to be prepared for that. Don't run out of the wilderness. When you're in the middle of the wilderness, if you're in the middle of the desert, what are the two things you need? You need food and you need water. What did Jesus say? I'm the bread of life, I'm the water of life. As long as you have Christ in the wilderness, you will be fine. Now, what else did we hear with John? He was not afraid to be honest. He preached a message of wrath and of judgment. But he also preached a message of repentance. So we can mention there is a hell, there is sin, but there's also the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. And what else do we see with John? When people came up and said, what am I supposed to do? John didn't promote himself. 
He didn't to promote his ministry. He said, be giving, be honest, be content. And he just kept pointing people towards the Lord. That is why John the Baptist, according to Jesus, was the greatest human that ever lived. Because his sole purpose in life was just to point people towards Christ. Well, we can have that same ministry today. Just point people towards the Lord and your actions and your ministry and what you do and what you say, how you live your life, how you live your marriage, how you raise your kids. Just point them towards the Lord and God handles the rest. Marv, going to come forward here for the final song. We'll pick this more up next week in Luke 3. We'll get into a little bit more baptism. I just want to mention to you real quick, we are having a baptism service coming up. We're finalizing the date. I believe, I believe it's going to be, let me check my calendar here. I believe we're shooting for August 26th. That's not finalized for sure, but if you are interested in getting baptized, uh, come see me, see Rich, see Renee, and we're going to get into more of what baptism means and represents next week when we teach on that a little bit. But if you have any questions about that, come see us, and we will definitely point you in the right direction. But keep that in the back of your mind. I believe August 26th is the date we're shooting for. We'll get more information in the next couple weeks on that. So without much further ado, we'll get over to uh, Kathy.